1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill it's uh, Coming to you on a cold day here in metro Atlanta. It's only about 34 degrees, I think, where I'm uh, uh, doing the show from today in uh, DeKalb County. And um, I think it's a little bit chilly around the state. I just looked down at Savannah. It's like 45 degrees this morning. So um, we're going to warm things up with talk about politics with a terrific... Today, starting with Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who joins me for Tuesday's shows. Tamar, thanks for being here again today.
0: Thanks, Bill. Staying warm with my little space heater under my desk, trying to make
1: it through this day. Well, I hope you do well. Um, You're you're a me—I think it's fair to call him one of your bosses, Leroy Chapman, managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution— is with us as well today. How are you, Leroy?
2: I'm doing well. It is, as always, a
1: pleasure and a privilege to be with you, Bill. Yeah, we're glad you're here. And we're also glad to have Stephen Fowler, who is GPB News's own political reporter. Stephen, how have you been doing?
3: Yeah, enjoyed a briefly calm Thanksgiving between redistricting and before next year's legislative starts. But it's always election season, so have plans to cover the mayor's election runoff tonight.
1: Yeah, uh, you're going to be at Felicia Moore headquarters, is that right?
3: That's right. And Riley Bunch will be at the Andre Dickens watch party.
1: Yeah, yeah. and we'll, of course, talk a little bit about where things stand in that runoff uh, today as we move forward forward on uh, the show. And back with us for the first time in a while, and I'm very glad he is, Bernard Fraga, professor of political science at Emory University. Bernard, I think it is fair to say, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that um, one of your areas that you special, one of the areas you are are particularly interested in is election patterns, particularly in terms of minority uh, voters, correct?
4: Yeah, that's right. Good morning, Bill, and it's great to be back with you. That's what I'm looking at when thinking about this mayoral election here in Atlanta. The data I'm crunching right now is trying to understand who voted uh, in November, who's voting right now, and um, what that means for the election outcome.
1: Um, okay, terrific. Thank you very much uh, for being with us today. Um, just very briefly, we talked about, about a bunch yesterday about the new COVID variant, the Omicron variant, and um, there's been some political uh, fallout from this, not surprising, I suppose. Uh, Congressman Ronnie Jackson, who you'll all recall was President Trump, former President Trump's physician uh, during the first part of his administration, now a member of Congress, has tweeted out that this uh, Omicron variant is a fraud. He says it's the mid election variant. He says, here comes the MEV, the midterm election variant. They need, meaning Democrats, a reason to push unsolicited nationwide mail-in ballots. Democrats will do anything to cheat during an election, but we're not going to let them. We also have Donald Trump Jr. advising people, his followers on social media, to uh, push back by not getting vaccinated. Uh, Tomorrow, we're not going to go into detail today, but it's just a distressing to hear the politics of COVID come into play again right now.
0: Exactly. And we talked about this a lot. I mean, with respect to any issue, but when it comes to politics, fear is such a powerful motivator, one way or another. Um, And certainly, I think forces are mobilizing to kind of take advantage of that.
1: Um, We're working here at Political Rewind on a show about COVID, where we stand in general with that, Uh, But particularly as we learn more information over this week about the Omicron variant, we're going to do a show on Friday that we're putting together right now. So you may want to put that in the back of your mind as something we're going to talk about uh, uh, later on. Um, But let's start by talking about this race for uh, the mayor of Atlanta. We also have a mayor's race in uh, Bainbridge that people are paying, I'm sorry, Brunswick that people are paying a lot of attention to today, especially in the aftermath of the trial down there. But um, And there are a couple of other mayor's races, too. But, um, Stephen, since you're going to be over there at Felicia Moore tonight, uh, it's interesting. We've seen contradictory polling on who's ahead in this race from different news organizations. One has Felicia Moore a little ahead, the other, Andre Dickens. But but I so I think we're not going to talk about polls. But the key issues in this race, public safety, um, and affordable housing, which comes in second, although it's second by a wide margin, are um, issues that are relevant to the entire to cities across the state. Stephen. Yeah, I think what we've
3: seen, if you can remember, it seems forever ago, last summer there were a lot of racial justice protests. And that kind of planted the seed for these conversations about crime because with some of the protests, there was some vandalism and some other things. Uh, As the COVID pandemic worsened and people were at home, there was a lot more violent crime in cities like Atlanta and other places that were being pointed out. And so uh, for better or for worse, the main driver that's going to take people to the polls today that haven't already voted is going to be who has the better vision for Atlanta's safety future. And so we've got both Felicia Moore and Andre Dickens serving on Atlanta City Council and they've worked uh, had different multiple votes on the record for how they feel about Atlanta's policing and different options for things and so I think, you know, uh, it's cliche to say it all comes down to turnout, but really it's probably going to come down for people who don't already have their mind made up well in advance about which one of these candidates to support. I would imagine that their views on crime in the city and who could uh, lead the city into a different direction
1: is probably what's going to be motivating people to show up. Um, and of course, Leroy, cr- crime in the city of Atlanta has it is a genuine issue. There's there's nothing fraudulent or it's not a fear mongering tactic. Here we've seen the uh, uh, homicides, uh, especially by. Uh, Gun violence go up at a staggering rate. Um, So it's a significant issue for voters to look at. I'm not personally sure how to differentiate all that much between Moore and Dickens when it comes to their programs on on combating violence, though, Leroy.
2: Yeah, so I think it's tough for voters to kind of uh, differentiate between the two. And I think some of their messaging is meant to do a little bit of that. Uh, I think early on what you saw in the runoff is uh, some mild sparring about, uh, you know, here's my approach to crime. I think Vickens went out of his way to say that uh, I'm looking uh, to do things where I, I attack the root causes and that my opponent doesn't. And Felicia Moore uh, kind of leaned in on her, on her experience. Uh, of late, uh, I think as the, in the closing arguments, uh, you've tried to see some sharper divisions. But but quite honestly, uh, if you think about this election, and if you look at the last two times Atlanta has had an open mayoral seat and there wasn't an incumbent, uh, you had sharper differences because you had, uh, you know, candidates, uh, and I think, uh, you know, in both those races, uh, it was very clear, uh, you know, Mary Norwood was the uh, the challenger in both. And it was very clear because you had, uh, you know, candidates who were, uh, you know, geographically different and different in a lot of ways, and, and race kind of wasn't a, a subtext. And this has been much different. So, um, you know, I think with the both of them, uh, with Kasim Reed out of the, the, the race, uh, I think there's some comfort probably with both. If you look at some of the polling, the favorability of both Dickens and Felicia Moore is very high. So I think there's probably some comfort with either of them, and they're having a tough time to differentiate themselves.
1: Um, Bernard, how do you look at you talked talk about uh, crunching numbers on this race? How are you looking at this race in as it comes to a conclusion?
4: Well, well I think there's two things to keep in mind. First of all, this is an off year election, so turnout is low, um, relatively low. We saw relatively low turnout in the general and in the runoff so far. It hasn't really kept pace. Now, the fact that there's a more limitations on, or, or there were more limitations on early in person voting is part of it. We'll see how high the turnout is on Election Day. Could be a repeat of what we saw in January, which was very high turnout at the polls on Election Day. But um, I'm really interested in understanding kind of which parts of the city and which demographic groups are turning out at higher rates and whether that helps us understand um, the candidates' bases of support and whether, um, you know, more or Dickens are able to rally their voters and, and turn them out.
1: So let me ask you one quick question about this, Um, and and Leroy already uh, mentioned it. You know, the last big mayoral contest uh, um, pitted—we had one major white candidate, the rest African-American candidates, Mary Norwood, who in two elections back-to-back against Kasim Reed came relatively close to beating him and seemed to be the white voter's choice for mayor. Uh, this time around, we had a white candidate, Sharon Gay. She was very well-funded. She may or may not have uh, run a campaign that saw her breakthrough. Nevertheless, voters, once again, white voters, had the choice of electing a white candidate. And instead, we have two African-American, African-Americans in this runoff. Should we, Bernard, see that as a sign of progress in terms of how voters view race and their city?
4: Well, I think not necessarily, right? So when we talk about, you know, race of candidates and the support that they get from voters, right, it's a much more complicated story. So one of the things that we saw at least from the data that's out there in the early November election of the general election uh, was that Moore seemed to be doing better, you know, in northern parts of the city, and even now there's discussion that she's doing better among white voters. Some of that has to do with her messaging. So it's less about race, especially you know, given that both candidates are black, and more about the messaging and the communities that they try and mobilize. And I think, you know, it makes sense that maybe a white candidate would do better at mobilizing white voters, but that's not necessarily true. Um, You really have to look at the issues, um, what's happening, and in a city like Atlanta where you have a pretty stark racial division, segregation obviously, but also almost 50-50 split, black and white, um, both candidates have to mobilize kind of both um, broad racial and ethnic communities and are gonna cater on the basis of policy more than their kind of um, racial and ethnic background.
0: It's interesting in recent debates, you've seen Andre Dickens kind of try and pin Felicia Moore kind of as the, as the white voters candidate of choice and kind of make her responsible um, for any sort of kind of differences in responses to issues. I believe it was her statement in response to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Um, Mm -hmm. that she, you know, she came out, you know, saying something very strongly. She ended up taking it down amidst a lot of criticism she was getting from some of her supporters. And you saw Andre Dickens really hammer her for that. So even though she is having to appeal to a broad cross section of the population, you see Dickens trying to, to capitalize on that. Um, a couple dynamics I'm going to be looking for tonight is first of all, who's able to capitalize and kind of win over those former Kasiv Reem supporters, specifically in places like Southwest Atlanta. Um, you've seen Dickens scoop up a lot of endorsements from a lot of. Um, from a lot of kind of Kasim folks, including Andrew Young, I'll be very interested to see if that happens. I'm also going to be watching to see if if any of Felicia Moores supporters end up going to the Dickens camp. Um, you saw some polling, including from places like the AJC that showed there was a larger, percentage, albeit a small one, uh, of more supporters who were open to switching their vote. Um, and I could see there being kind of an anyone but Kasim contingent who might have gone with uh, with more because she was seen as kind of the leader in that first round of voting. I'm, I'm curious to see if any of them jump.
3: Stephen? I think if you look at a 10,000 foot level and kind of what Bernard was talking about with the different parts of Atlanta and how they tend to vote, you have the whiter, wealthier North Atlanta part that uh, votes for uh, Felicia Moore in the first time. In 2017, it was Mary Norwood's base of support. And then you have Southwest Atlanta, the more African-American parts of the city that voted for Kasim Reed, and in this time Kasim Reed and Andre Dickens. And what I'm interested in watching is what's going to happen in the east side and southeast side of Atlanta, which is where I live. It's kind of the swing area. In 2017, they voted predominantly for Kathy Woolard and then pivoted to vote for Kasim Reed in the runoff. Mm-hmm. And it's a part of Atlanta that's changing the most. Uh, you've got neighborhoods, you've got the Beltline, you have the Atlanta and DeKalb County sections where more people are moving in and that are changing the demographic and political fabric of Atlanta. And so, you know, it will be interesting to see, you know, I think the latest census numbers show Atlanta is no longer majority black. It's just under 50% because of the population growth and people moving in in this part of the city. And I think the first go-round, you had more support for Andre Dickens in some of these East Atlanta neighborhoods and Southeast Atlanta neighborhoods. So I'll be interested to see if that pushes through to the runoff, and that will be the difference maker when all votes are counted.
1: Um, Stephen, uh, while the ball's in your court, let me ask you about uh, the the, uh, incident that Tamar referred to. Right after the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, um, Felicia Moore did, uh, I I guess, tweet out or issued a statement, I'm not sure in what form it came, uh, basically criticizing the jury for not finding him guilty. And she got very quick pushback. Um, Obviously, um, the Dickens camp, uh, went after her over it. but but she also got pushback from people who potentially are voters, particularly in uh, the Buckhead community. In a small turnout election, what do we think the potential impact of something like that is or is that just something we all like to talk about and quickly evaporates? I mean, I, you know, every vote matters, especially in a low turnout election,
3: especially as I read a story this morning from The Washington Post that Democrats are lamenting the even lower turnout in this election than the 2017 cycle. But I do think it contributes to the overall narrative that has been crafted about these two candidates and it has been crafted about the direction of Atlanta and crafted about really what your vote for or against a certain candidate means. So is that statement going to be the difference maker in who's the next mayor of Atlanta? Probably not. Is that statement going to contribute to a lot of middle paragraphs and stories about the election results? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, Bernard?
4: So, I mean, again, low turnout to me is really the story here. Um, you know, the data that's said so far from the, from the you know, general at the beginning of November is about 96,000 Atlantans voted. In mm-hmm. uh, the runoff so far, it's only 30,000, right? And this is, you know, mm-hmm. tiny, tiny turnout, less than 25 percent of registered voters in Atlanta voted in early November. And now, you know, you're seeing less than half of that. So I think the question is whether you're going to see a surge of turnout. Again, in some of these swing areas uh, that Stephen was talking about today or whether we're, you know, we're going to have an ever smaller portion of the city deciding who, you know, in a very important election, who the next leader is going to be. The other thing that I'm noticing here, just looking at the data, is that in uh, you know, November 2nd, right, we saw the share of voters in Atlanta who are white was 54%. Right now it stands at 49%. So again, you know, a city that's changing demographically, becoming a little bit more white. It looks like at the moment, at very least, black voters are a slightly larger share of the voters in the runoff than they were in the 2021 general election in the city.
0: Runoffs are historically tough uh, to get your voters to, to come back out. And especially one like this, you know, with our our federal races in Georgia, our runoffs um, are, you know, in, in January or at least were last year. But um you know, now this is right after Thanksgiving. People have been trying to unplug. They've been trying to get away from a lot of this stuff. And so I think it's it makes it that much harder for these campaigns to, to reach out to folks, especially if voters... Think of, um, you know, have a hard time differentiating between Moore and Dickens. So that's certainly going to be a challenge. Um, as for Rittenhouse, you know, I 100% agree with with Stephen and and Bernard in that with a low turnout elections, if you know anything can sway voters, and that could really make the difference. At the same time, that was already what a month ago, something like that. And, the, you know, people's mind, people's memories are so short. We kind of have goldfish memory in politics sometimes. And perhaps enough has happened that that's dissipated away.
1: Um, you know, because this show reaches a statewide audience, I've mentioned on a, a number of occasions that I, I sometimes hesitate to focus too much attention on any one part of the state, but this mayor's race has a big impact statewide. And all you have to do is go back and look at the relationship that Kasim Reed uh, and Governor Nathan Deal were able to forge. Despite their many uh, partisan political differences, they came together to work on projects that benefited both the city and the state. The deepening of the Savannah Harbor being one of the really powerful examples of that Stephen, particularly important in this election, although I don't know how voters would figure out which person to choose, is going to be the relationship that the next mayor of Atlanta is able to form with state leaders at the Capitol. The governor, the Speaker of the House, Lieutenant Governor, as this issue of a Buckhead City movement uh, takes shape in the new session in January.
3: Well, I think if you look at Kasim Reed, for all of his antagonistic relationships with people, one of the more comfortable relationships he had was with Governor Nathan Deal. And I think they found plenty of things that they could bridge that gap, uh, partisan gap, to do things that benefited both the city and the state. I think the next mayor of Atlanta and the current uh, leadership in the governor's office and the speaker and the legislature – is going to have a much more difficult road ahead. You know, in the last four years, there have been battles over control of the airport that the Mayor Bottoms had to forcefully fight back. And some of the people that are supporting that, uh, the support of the airport takeover, are also in favor of this Buckhead cityhood movement. And I think it's going to take a major political force of will with all parties involved, the governor, the speaker, the next mayor of Atlanta, to navigate this Buckhead cityhood movement and to figure out how to hash things out in a 2022 legislative session where everyone else is up for re-election and you've got big midterms. So I think for all of the ills and problems and ambitions that the mayor may have for the city of Atlanta and things moving forward, that's going to take up a lot of oxygen.
1: Meanwhile, Tamar, if we look down to the Georgia coast, the Brunswick mayor's election, it, it You know, um, without getting into details about the candidates, the reality is the people of Brunswick have just come through this terribly difficult 20-plus months dealing with the murder of Ahmad Arbery, all of the reaction to that, uh, the um, the trial itself, uh, all of the news about the two uh, district attorneys who refused to take up the case and move forward. There are so many things in the atmosphere down on the Georgia coast as a result of this murder and Brunswick now looking to turn a corner. And it feels in a way like this mayor's race is an opportunity beyond just the verdict in the trial to reset down there tomorrow. Do, do you think I have that right?
0: Absolutely. As you mentioned, it's been a really tough almost two years down there. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who are hoping to kind of put that behind them and, and heal a little bit.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break. Well, before we do, let me say that we also are going to be following. uh, There's some school board uh, runoffs around the state. There's some council and commissioner races around the state. So there are any number of people who have the opportunity to go to the polls today, whether they take advantage of that to vote in runoffs is another uh, matter. And we'll be watching all of that to talk about it on the show as we move on through the week. Now, with that, let's get our first break of the show out of the way, and we'll come back with more on political Back on this Tuesday, Election Day issue of Political Rewind, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the AJC, Stephen Fowler, political reporter at GPB News, getting set to go out and cover the mayor's race. Uh, tonight, Bernard Fraga, professor of political science at Emory University, join us. Unfortunately, Roy Chapman um, had to leave us. He's got uh, something he has to deal with uh, and sent us a note saying that he just had to jump off of the show today. And uh, so we won't uh, have the benefit of his thinking as the show continues. Um, let's talk tomorrow about this endorsement which Brian Kemp got yesterday from the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. The Georgia Chamber of Commerce represents business interests around the state, and I think it's fair to say that it is a more, say, conservative body than perhaps the Atlanta Metro Chamber the other powerful chamber of commerce in uh, the state. And just as a piece of history, we have to remember that when he ran for election the first time against Stacey Abrams, Kemp did not get the endorsement of the Georgia Chamber, which stunned a lot of people. They hedged their bets. They saw that Stacey Abrams had a chance to possibly win that race, and so they didn't endorse at all. Uh, The Kemp people were furious about that, but now he's gotten their endorsement early. question is, how significant is it?
0: Well, first of all, remember also that in the Republican primary in 2018, the Georgia Chamber ended up endorsing Casey Cagle, who was then considered the runaway Republican favorite. And the entire, not only the business community, but kind of the Republican political establishment, every sort of lobbying interest, everyone had kind of assumed that Casey Cagle had it in the bag. Um, And so all the endorsements were, were going to Cagle. So I think... Um, you know, it put the the Georgia Chamber in an awkward spot. They had a um, kind of luncheon where both candidates spoke, and it was really awkward and and strange. But I mean, certainly, it's impossible to to look at this endorsement today in a vacuum. Of course, uh, you know, we're hearing signs that former Senator David Perdue might. Uh, primary Brian Kemp, obviously there's, you know, speculation and e- probably even more than that, that Stacey Abrams is going to join again. Um, so obviously it sends a pretty strong signal about what the business community um, is uh, thinking, especially when it comes to the Purdue, uh, potential for a Purdue Kemp matchup again.
1: Um You know, Bernard, we talked about this among ourselves before the show went on the air a little bit. And, um, you, you know, I, I said, does this You know, you could look at this endorsement in terms of David Perdue in one of two ways. Um, One is that the Kemp people pushed the chamber to make the endorsement now because they do think perhaps Perdue is about to jump into the race. Mm. Uh, The other side of that would be that David Perdue, who styles himself – as one of the best business leaders in the state, not getting their endorsement might find that discouraging in some way. I'm not suggesting you have the answer, but just talk to us about what you think, and Stephen, you weigh in too, please.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of the way that this could be interpreted. One is that it would head off a potential challenge uh, from within the Republican Party, uh, from David Perdue, right, challenging Brian Kepp. You know, I'm also wondering how much this signals anything about the general election. and Again, this potential rematch between Kemp and Abrams. Now, Abrams hasn't gotten in yet already, but I'm wondering whether this is, you know, has anything to do with the timing and the, the weight, um, this seemingly endless weight the Democrats have for Stacey Abrams to indicate what her intentions are. Uh, I mean, does a... You know, Chamber knows something that we don't about whether she's going to get in. I'm not sure, but uh, I think there's there's a lot of questions there about whether she's waiting for the primary, the Republican primary field to clear things to get settled a little bit, and then she'll step in.
1: Stephen, you work with, you get a lot of sources. You've you've put together a really good network of sources uh, in your time at GPB. Are you hearing anything about a Purdue win, or is that still just a murmur that nobody really has any answers to?
3: It, it still seems like a murmur. Uh, it, it still seems like, uh, I think I mentioned the last time I was on the show, it seems like it's a way to set up Brian Kemp to be the fall guy if Democrats win statewide next year, win some seats. But uh, I have heard a lot of people on both sides of the aisle not happy with this Georgia Chamber endorsement. You know, some Democrats, I think Representative Terry was said, There's not even a Democrat announced running in the race yet. So how is the Georgia Mm -hmm. chamber going to vet the best person to be the next governor of Georgia if you don't know who the players are? I think uh, this does read as a way to ensure that David Perdue, Fortune 500 CEO, longtime businessman and uh, champion for the economy and business community, is not the one getting the chamber endorsement. I, I think it does really... What this does is send a signal that, uh, you know, do not enter if you're David Perdue, which is what he's been getting from a lot of other people that he's talked to about potentially running. But I've also heard from plenty of Republicans that say uh, to the anti Kemp factions that are out there and the people that don't love Kemp, this decision coming so early and this endorsement coming so early is just going to make people that don't like Brian Kemp dig in their heels even further. And kind of seem like that there are people putting their thumb on the scale on his behalf and missing kind of the overall conversation about what Kemp might have done for the businesses or economy.
0: Yeah, I mean, piggybacking off what Stephen just said, I'm, you know, I think to Trump's most loyal followers, um, I'm not convinced that an endorsement from the Georgia Chamber means all that much. That's a pretty establishment Republican brand. And that's lost a lot of um, pull among kind of, I mean, what used to be the Tea Party, but now kind of the Trumpy populist elements. Um, (laughs) They hate the establishment and kind of all that that represents. So I could also see them being emboldened. By, by something like that. And you only have to look as far as Brian Kemp in 2018, who did not get the endorsement of the Georgia Chamber to show that that doesn't necessarily make or break a Republican candidate.
1: Well, but it is interesting and ironic that you were the one who pointed out that the Chamber endorsed Casey Cagle in the primary, and of course Brian Kemp beat him. And the irony being that the reason Brian Kemp, most of us believe, was able to win was because whose endorsement did he have back then? Donald Trump's, which he's most certainly, tomorrow not getting this time around.
0: <laughs> exactly. And that could be perhaps one of the, the things that Stacey Abrams is, is weighing whether Sh- to, to jump into all of this. This kind of buys her extra time in a way. Should David Perdue jump in, Republicans are going to have to deal with a very messy and expensive primary fight where they're going to have to do a scorched earth campaign that's really going to weaken the party. And in a way, that's doing the job of what Democrats would be doing anyway. So this kind of buys her time to kind of sit back and uh, not have to jump in, not have to do that kind of crazy campaign schedule, let the the Republicans do that work for her.
1: So let's talk about that a little bit. Bernard, you were the first one to mention uh, Stacey Abrams today. Let me read to you the first couple of uh, sentences from a piece that The Hill posted. Uh, The uh, headline of the piece is Democrats Anxious Over Abrams' Silence on Georgia Governor's Bid. Democrats are growing anxious about when and even whether Stacey Abrams will enter the 2022 race for Georgia governor as the party sets its sight on capturing a statewide office that narrowly eluded them less than four years ago. Party operatives almost universally believe that Abrams will end up running But her continued silence on her plans has some worried that a late entrance into the race could hamper the party's hopes of victory next year. And, Bernard, the article goes on to point out that one of the real concerns is if for some reason she sits this out, there's nobody poised to jump in who has any uh, guarantee of fundraising ability or uh, ability to be, be a breakthrough candidate, Bernard.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, what the article points out is, is two things, right? First of all, if Abrams, you know, continues to wait, gets in very late. You know, we talked about strategically, there could be some advantages to that in terms of letting the Republicans fight with themselves in a messy primary battle. But, you know, even if she gets in late, you know, it might be difficult for her to kind of build the momentum, although she's such a known quantity. You know, I think that trade off is OK. But if she doesn't get in, Right. If she does not get in, it's going to be very difficult for any Democrat to get anywhere near the kind of presence that she has in terms of statewide name recognition, in terms of building a kind of mobilization and uh, persuasion kind of machine that could be successful. Especially if you see Republicans close ranks um, around Brian Kemp. And you know, I, I don't know what national Republicans are going to do. Certainly, right now, um, you know, Brian Kemp might not be the favorite of many Trump supporters, but. If it's kept versus Abrams, um, I think Republicans will fall in line, even the Trump supporters who were angry at him um, last year.
3: I think there is a school of thought that the best thing Stacey Abrams could do next year for Georgia statewide is not run for office because uh, she is such a known quantity. She has kept her name and attention and activity up since losing the governor's race. And she's got a very visceral negative response that is a way to rally Republicans around as a kind of electoral boogeyman. So there is a school of thought of people that I've talked to that says if she doesn't run, whoever does decide to run would have access to the just oodles and oodles of oodles of money that Abrams and Fairfax have raised. She would have access to some of the campaign infrastructure and messaging that Stacey Abrams championed that resonated with almost enough voters to put her in office and would have the ability to have any surrogates that would come for a Stacey Abrams campaign for governor to come without the front attention of having the negatives that Stacey Abrams has. You know, there may be an unknown candidate or a lesser-known candidate, like maybe State Senator Jen Jordan, who's currently running for attorney general. But what that means is that there's not the built-in boogeyman that Republicans can say, look, ooh, Stacey Abrams. I mean, Stacey Abrams is enough that people around the country – would fundraise and bring in time and money to help make sure that she doesn't get anywhere near office with her uh, socialist tentacles or whatever the Republicans claim that she has. But it's going to be harder to do that with a different Democrat that isn't so polarizing, that isn't so well known, that has that time and energy and money that can be built up for a more positive message.
0: And I agree with, with Stacey Abrams. You know, the, the issue with her is that for better or worse, voters made up their minds about her a long time ago in, in 2018. And I feel like there are very few people um, who, who kind of aren't sure about her. You either absolutely love her or you absolutely hate her. And it becomes harder to convince new voters. At the same time, Stacey Abrams can excite a Democratic voter uh, better than probably any other candidate I can think of, probably nationally. Um, at the same time, when I think about the possibility of her not running, you know Stacey Abrams is still kind of a party lady. You know, she was the head of the Democrats when she was in um, you know when she was serving in the general Assembly in the House. Um her mentor was Dubo Porter. She's obviously very close with Nikema Williams, the head of the party. and I I would just think if she wasn't going to run, she would have given people such a heads up so that they could be ready and kind of be positioning somebody, whether that's a Michael Thurmond or somebody else to kind of take that mantle. And for me, the fact that that doesn't seem to have occurred suggests very heavily that she will step in. She's just taken her time.
1: Yeah, just to put a final uh, point on this uh, before we move on, it it strikes me that without regard to whether we think she'd be a great governor or not a great governor, without trying to comment on that part of it, I think anyone who underestimates uh, Stacey Abrams' ability— to come up with strategies. And Lauren Growargo, her closest advisor, those two have proven their brilliance in how they deal with politics over the years. So trying to second guess when she should enter, if she'll enter, strikes me as kind of a fool's errand. Uh, I think Democrats probably feel confident that once this decision is made, they're going to move ahead full steam, and and I think doubting her now uh, is is a questionable tactic. All right, I want to—before we get to the break, let me um, take up a story that we weren't able to get to yesterday, and and that's the fact, um, Stephen, the Georgia Board of Regents, last year, in the midst of all of the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, events that took place in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder— They formed an advisory committee to look at changing the names of buildings on state university campuses across the state. The advisory committee came back with a list of dozens of buildings that they thought should be changed because they represent segregationists or slave owners, people who had racist histories, whatever. And the Board of Regents took all of that under advisement and said, nah, we're not going to move forward um, it's an interesting decision, and I think one that leaves a lot of people unsettled.
3: Well, I, I think it goes back to what Tamar said earlier about uh, goldfish grain. Uh, I think the strategy here is maybe the Board of Regents is anticipating that people will forget about their non-action uh, by the time anything else rolls around, be it the legislative session or uh, the midterm election next year. I mean, as we've seen in the South, in particular, Changing the names of people, places, and things uh, gets a lot of people riled up. Maybe a small number of people riled up, but it gets people riled up enough that it seems the Board of Regents has made a calculation that in a Republican-controlled state where there's a thriving population that does not want to see names of historical things changed or go through that effort, that the better decision is to anger some by doing nothing and hope that people forget or move on or do something else uh, before there's any sort of sustained protest or controversy or uh, knife twisting to make action happen.
4: Bernard. You know, I think what's interesting about this is that, you know, this is an advisor committee made the recommendation. They vetted, they looked at the history. They didn't say rename everything. They said, you know, make some changes for particularly egregious right situations. And yet, right? The regions looked at that and said, well, you know, we're just not going to do anything. So I think that, again, this is symbolic of the state of politics today, which is, you know, for all the talk we have about making informed decisions or whatever it is, right at the end of the day, right, even when you have the experts come in and say, this is the path we should take, if it doesn't look politically palatable, folks won't buy it. And I think that the the regions made a decision that you know, Steve had said, you know, is very much in line with You know, a good read of the current politics in the state, a good read of how much of an issue this is going to be going forward. But it's unfortunate that it doesn't align with, again, an advisory commission that was was trying to make the best decision possible, a way of making sure that people feel included while also preserving history of many of these, you know, names and institutions and buildings.
1: All right. Um, Thank you all for uh, your comments about that issue. We're going to take our final break of the show and come back with more on Political Rewind. Tomorrow, even though runoff elections are taking place today, we already have a lot of data uh, about what voters uh, dealt with when they went to the polls on November 2nd in the general election. And uh, that, of course, was the first election under SB uh, 202, the new Georgia election law. Your colleague, Mark Nisi, uh filed a story last week uh, saying this. The top reason Georgia election officials rejected absentee ballot applications this fall was they were submitted too close to Election Day missing a deadline imposed by the state's new voting law. The, the uh, legislature passed a law signed by Governor Kemp that established an 11-day period. You could not get a a voter an absentee ballot uh, if your application came in uh, closer to the election than 11 days. There were many people who thought that was a bad idea back then. And although we're talking about hundreds of people, not thousands— it's interesting to think about the imp- implications of that.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's worth noting that the rejection rate is is still far higher than what it was last year before, um, or I guess earlier this year. Geez, Louise, what a long year um, before this this new voting law was passed. So about four percent four percent of absentee ballot requests for this year's elections on November second were rejected. That's compared to less than one percent last year. Um, and I think this is going to continue discussions about what's the proper amount of time, um, kind of before or kind of closest to an election where it still is acceptable to, to be able to request an absentee ballot. There are some people who say you need enough time to make sure that the ballot is going to get to you, um, before election day, Republicans are saying, we're giving you enough time, you know, to, to get to the polls if you need to, so um, I'm sure Stephen and Bernard can, can talk about this much better than, than I do, but certainly the, this law is going to have consequences and especially in tight elections, something like 700 uh, rejections could be enough to sway an election.
1: Stephen, I think it is worth noting that uh, of those people who couldn't get their ballots through uh, the mail because of the deadline, about half of them did end up voting in person. Uh, which suggests that there are people who are going to vote despite whatever restrictive voting laws are passed by a state.
3: You know, I, I pulled
1: the data just before the show for this runoff election. And right
3: now, there are only about 111 total rejected applications, and a number of those are for coming in after the deadline. And, you know, some of them were a day or two after them. Some of them were a week after Uh, But, you know, there were two applications that were rejected for coming in yesterday, which would have been after any deadline before, during or after SB 202. And I think the rejection data is important to look at, but also the next election that we're going to have will probably have a different amount because people will know the law and candidates and campaigns and groups will shift people differently. Same with next November's election. You know, there will probably be very much heavy messaging from the Democrats, from voting rights groups about the deadline and when this is in order to keep the number of rejections down to keep people who want to vote by mail well compliant in there. But, you know, there is something to be said about the deadline being earlier uh, because you're not seeing very many rejections of actual ballots coming in after the polls close. Some of that's because there are drop boxes that are uh, in some cases more in some cases less accessible than before but uh, you know now there aren't really uh, people getting their ballots rejected for coming in after the deadline because uh, they're coming in earlier and one more thing to say just about the runoff that we've seen so far this is a lower turnout runoff so there were fewer people requesting absentee ballots this is a tighter turnaround runoff so the people that are getting their absentee ballots this time appear to be people that regularly vote by mail and regularly know the deadlines and regularly do it earlier. So it's hard to draw too many conclusions from this, but I guess it will just be something to watch moving forward as we, you know, message and as people, uh, voting rights groups, message how the absentee process works.
1: Um, Bernard, your uh, Emory colleague, Alan Abramowitz, has argued uh, repeatedly on this show that uh, voting laws, the the most recent voting laws in Georgia, in fact, are going to energize Democratic voters, not suppress the vote. Um, I know you have to be a little careful about uh, 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 this issue because of your involvement with uh, the 2020 elections, but in a more general way, I think the question is, you wrote a very interesting paper uh, about um, who voter ID, another issue that's been a significant one uh, in terms of uh, uh, su- possibly suppressing the vote. And, and you found that it is minorities, absolutely, that are most affected by this.
4: Yeah, and I think that really points to, um, you know, the main takeaway from when we make election law changes. Do many voters adapt? Sure. Do voters find some other way of making sure that their vote counts? Absolutely. Do campaigns. Adapt as well and spend precious resources trying to mobilize people, give them the information they need to navigate all of these election changes. Of course, because they want to win. But when we look at the data, and that's exactly what we're going to do, you know, after looking at this runoff, thinking about the rejections, you know, do we see disproportionate impacts on historically disenfranchised groups, racial and ethnic minority groups? And when I looked at voter ID in Texas, they passed a law in 2014 that made their already pretty strict voter ID law even more strict, made it very difficult to get exemptions. Um, Student IDs for a while didn't even count. What we found was that African-American voters, black voters, showed up to the polls and would have been turned away, right? Not because they didn't have ID. They definitely had ID. They were registered to vote. Everyone knew who they were, but just because they didn't have the very specific forms. And so that's why I think it, the devil is in the details of these laws. And when you look very closely, which is exactly what we need to do, that's where you see oftentimes, at the very least, a disproportionate impact that harms minority voters. And That's exactly why. Right. So many groups are trying very hard to to really understand um, the potential impact, especially in close election, that these laws can have.
1: OK, um, thank you for that. Uh, let's move on uh, to a story that just popped up on the AJC's uh, uh, website. Um, tomorrow, you may not have had a chance to absorb this yet, but there's a new PAC, a super PAC, that is stepping in to uh, support Herschel Walker's bid for uh, the U.S. Senate against Raphael Warnock. Well, first, of course, in the Republican primary. The organization calls itself 34 n 22 and uh, uh, Bluestein says that they plan to provide the former George Football running back with some air cover through a GOP primary and a potential general election campaign against uh, Raphael Warnock. Of course, we know that Herschel Walker does have competitors in the primary, Gary Black, Kelvin uh, King, and uh, Latham Sadler. But this strikes me as just one more example tomorrow of the kind of firepower that's going to come to bear on Herschel Walker's campaign, and that's going to make it increasingly difficult for these other candidates to find room to maneuver.
0: Exactly. And often groups like this are able to raise and spend millions of dollars for for things like television ads to help, um, you know, kind of shoot down their, their opponents. And, you know, obviously they aren't allowed to coordinate with the campaign, but uh, people remember television advertisements. And, um, you know, certainly it can't hurt H- Herschel.
1: Stephen, let me – you comment on that, please. But let me add another factor here and see what you think of this. The the Georgia Bulldogs are rated, as we all know, number one in the country. They're headed potentially to play in a national championship game. Herschel Walker played in a national championship game. And it strikes me that um, he has potential to really raise his profile – um, through the football, through the football playoffs, just by being associated with what's happening now and what happened when he was at, at, on the team, if nothing else, there's just sort of this um, additional uh, beneficial impact for him. Do you think I'm I'm dreaming? <laughs> I mean, I, I think if you're a Georgia
3: football fan, you already know about Herschel Walker and his legendary status there, and I'm not sure that Georgia hopefully winning a national championship would change it that much, but it does give a lot of extra airtime because it's very, very easy for his campaign staff to get a lot of stories and things placed adjacent, you know, because he's running, because I'm sure he'll be at the festivities and things like that. You know, you don't need to coordinate with a campaign as a pack when you've got, uh, you know, all of this other things, well, you can't, but also like there's so much free media waiting in the wings for Herschel Walker related to this football game. And I think that's something that, uh, Gary Black and Latham Sadler and Kelvin King combined could never have that amount of impact. Now, whether it changes the calculus of the politics, uh, probably not.
1: Um, thank you for saying that better than I did. Lots of free publicity for Herschel Walker. Stephen, just, a, you know, got to be careful about how he feels he— Went to Emory. They have no football team. Bernard Fraga. <laughs> <you know. laughs> uh, Bernard, we're almost out of time. But you agree that that Walker's going to get a lot of free press out of this uh, run for the championship?
4: Uh, maybe. I think that again, you know, we have to see. You know what he's campaigning on. The dynamics of the primary versus the general are going to be very different. We'll see. All
1: right. We're out of time. Uh, Bernard Fraga, Stephen Fowler, Tamar Hallerman, thank you for being here for today's uh, Political Rewind and a terrific conversation. Um, we we talked yesterday about the death of Stephen Sondheim, one of the greatest artists of the second half of the 20th century, and a, and a, a person who's affected my life in countless ways with his music. We're going to close again today with a song from a show he wrote called Merrily We Roll Along, which was not an enormous success, but which produced wonderful pieces of music, including this song, which we're going to hear from Bernadette Peters as we say goodbye. Not a day goes by. Take care. Stay healthy. Here's Bernadette Peters.
0: Not a day by
3: not a single day but you're
2: somewhere a part of my life and it looks like you'll stay.